in a sense it's old because I preached this message exactly four years ago. Um, back in the days when I was still preaching from the New American Standard. So what I did was I listened to this message and transcribed the whole thing because it's, I think it's, it, it covers um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't think I would do a better job in putting together a new message. And I've changed a few things just to uh, and, uh, fix some of my mistakes. But I'd like, I'd like you to engage um, and to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's 58 verses. <laughs> this message is 45 minutes long. I actually know how long it is. Um, and we're not going to read the 58 verses all at once. We'll be going through, and there's a little section that we'll skip because it kind of repeats itself. Uh, we're, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. So now that you're there, put a bookmark there. And let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. I want to use that to introduce our, our text and our message. Romans chapter 5. We've been there not so long ago. I actually had a second message prepared, which would have been a new one, on Romans chapter 5, uh, on this one particular verse. I'll tell you what it is as soon as I get there. Romans chapter 5. All right, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God. Now you look at that passage, that little verse, we're justified by his blood, knowing that that blood means a death of Christ. But it says, much more shall we be saved, or, therefore justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you know you're not talking about someone dead, okay? This is the blood of Jesus Christ once shed on our behalf, and we are, we are saved by him, by Jesus Christ, from the wrath of God. Our, our primary enemy in this world, if we are outside of Christ, is not the world, the flesh, or the devil, but it is the wrath of God. Um, and Christ saves us from that by providing that sacrifice. And verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by, to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So we're reconciled to God by the death of his son, and there is a whole plethora of, of big words related to the atonement that are fulfilled in the death of, the, of, of Christ. Propitiation is one. Reconciliation is one. Redemption is one. Sanctity. Er, um, salvation is one. They're all, all fulfilled. They are finished in the cross of Christ. It is finished. It is done. The debt has been paid. Our sin is gone. What then does it mean when it says, much more than having been justified by his death, or having been reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? My other sermon dealt with the, this life. What exactly is this life that saves us? It's indestructible. It is incorruptible. There are all sorts of um, attributes of it. But I wanted to introduce, because we've been in Romans, I wanted to introduce this just by saying that you cannot separate the death and resurrection of Christ as, uh, as exclusive events that do not have uh, absolute dependence upon each other, and together they form the gospel. So the text that we're in today in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is really, it is really the gospel text. It is the text that lays out in full, first of all in brief and then in full, the ramifications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with that, I'm going to launch into this, this message, and I, I trust that you will be blessed by it. I was blessed preparing. 
Christ is risen. This has been the anthem proclaimed by the church for over 2,000 years. And it is used, it used to be the greeting Christians used when they met one another. We did it this morning. When a person responded, Christ is risen indeed, it was a sign that the two were one in the faith. Now my question this afternoon is, Christ is risen, so what? I don't say that in a disrespectful way, but there's a number of reasons for asking that question. For one, the world asks that question. So what? What's so wonderful about Christ's resurrection? And for that matter, did it even happen? In recent years, there's been a revival of interest in some of the ancient mystery religions. And many of them are trying to discount Christianity, claiming it's just a rehashing of ancient myths. The idea of the sun setting and the moon coming up and then the sun rising again. They say that Christianity is just recycling these old myths and that there's nothing really unique about it. So we have an obligation in our situation to make a clear case that the resurrection is indeed separate from any other myth or any other story. Because it is not a myth and it is not just a story. It is a matter of historical fact. No other so-called deity can be historically documented to have died and risen from the dead. You've got to go into the realm of fantasy to find that kind of a savior. Jesus is completely different. The resurrection is incredibly significant. Remember what Jesus said when the Pharisees and leaders wanted a sign? They wanted a sign that he was the son of God. Show us a sign and we'll believe. And he said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days and then came out. Of course, it's a picture of his own resurrection. Remember that what Jesus said, uh, the re resurrection is the central sign of Christianity. Everything stands or falls with the resurrection. We're going to see that very clearly in our text today. So I want you to... I want to take you through a few points which will demonstrate why the resurrection is so vital, so important, so challenging, and so exciting for Christians. First of all, the resurrection is confirmed by a proven testimony. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be there through the whole message. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will uh, begin at verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and, in which you are being, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Just in passing, I'd like, to notice, like you to notice the verb tense in verse 2, and by which you are being saved. See, that is the life of Christ that is now saving us. This is Paul's way of saying, I'm all about the gospel. The gospel is the reason that you stand. Your faith rests in the gospel. Your life depends on the gospel. If your faith is in something else, it is nothing. It is vanity. The gospel is the good news. And then Paul goes on to define the gospel. Now, if you want a quick summary of the gospel, you don't just say Jesus died for our sins. You say Christ rose from the dead because it implies his death. It implies his conquering of death. It implies his real life right now. And of course, when you consider his ascension into heaven beyond that, you have the whole core of our faith. Romans 10 says that those who confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. Faith in Christ's resurrection is faith in the gospel. Now let's move on to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Here we have the witness of revelation. Now what Paul is doing here is he's bringing in witness after witness. The witness of revelation is the first one. The word of God reveals that Christ has risen from the dead. The word of God reveals this. Now the Apostle Paul had his own encounter with the risen Christ. The glory of Jesus knocked him off his horse and onto his back. He was blinded. He heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
He was face to face with the very Son of God whom he was persecuting. But notice how Paul starts his account of the resurrection. It is not with personal experience. Christ died for our sins in accordance with what? In accordance with the scriptures. Now he's not referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They hadn't even been written yet. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Think of Psalm 22, which lays out a vivid account of the crucifixion hundreds of years before it happened. Or Isaiah 52 and 53. Both of those passages allude to the resurrection as well. That is the witness of revelation. That is our primary line of defense. Even though people reject the word of God, that doesn't permit us as Christians to neglect the use of God's word in its own defense. God's word is the hammer that breaks the hard, impenitent heart into little pieces. It's like a fire that burns inside a person's heart when the Lord opens its meaning. It is a word, the sword of the spirit, which pierces the heart, discerning its thoughts and intentions. You see, Paul is really acting like a defense attorney, making a case for the resurrection. And his first witness is the witness of revelation, the word of God. You'll notice also that he's defining the gospel here and that the part of the gospel that is that part of the gospel is that it is in accordance with the scriptures, not according to an experience he had or something he felt or a prayer that he prayed, but according to the scriptures. Christ died for my sin. This is Paul personalizing it. This is me personalizing it. Christ died for my sin according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Secondly, in addition to the witness of revelation, we have the witness of recollection. Let's continue to read in verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of us, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the witness of recollection. The point here is that the resurrected Christ appeared to one, then to twelve, then to five hundred, a couple more, and then finally to the author of this book. And most of these witnesses were still alive to talk about it. The Bible standard for a true testimony is that it is established in the presence of two or three witnesses. You can see here that the weight of eyewitness testimony of Christ's resurrection is overwhelming. The event really did take place. It it was such a momentous event that Christ's enemies had to make up a story to cast doubt upon it. So they said to the the disciples had come and taken the body. Imagine, imagine that. Those same disciples, Peter, who denied Christ three times before the rooster crowed and cowered in the presence of this little girl. The disciples, who were so grief-stricken that they could not even stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane, suddenly found the courage to battle through a Roman guard of 16 heavily armed men, trained to fight off an entire army on pain of their own death if they failed, and to roll away the stone and to take the body of Jesus. You see, the alternative explanation is incredible. That is to say, it is not Credible. It just doesn't make sense. The only sensible explanation is exactly what Paul lays out for us here. This is the witness of recollection. People remembered it and Paul recorded it. Any good historian would see this as credible testimony. Next, we have the witness of regeneration. And this is one that I trust we all, I, I hope that we all share. Now, Paul could have put this one first. And usually when people give their testimonies, they do put this first. He could have said, can't you see how my life has changed? Don't you see that I'm a new man now? The old things have passed away. Well, he could have started with that. But Paul is very deliberate in all of his letters. He lays out a foundation first. And the foundation is faith that in what has already been established in the word of God. We've just spent how many weeks in Romans laying that foundation what is already established and the evidence of the proof are all there and they're all in accordance with the word of God. So he starts with that. Then he moves on to, uh, to this witness of, uh, of, or then to recollection, then to regeneration. Uh, now, 
Not to say that regeneration is not a powerful witness in itself, and I'll, I'll go on to explain that. So the word of God comes first, personal testimony comes second. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That's the before part of the before and after. The very first Christian martyr recorded in history was Stephen. And he had just preached a blistering sermon exposing the hypocrisy of the religious establishment. He was also preaching the name of Jesus. And as he was preaching, those who saw him noticed that his face looked like the face of an angel. The men who picked up stones to kill him laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, the same man we now know as Paul. You can see that Paul, you see that Paul knows that he is unworthy to be among the company of apostles. We all ought to say we're not worthy. Who here is worthy to be called a follower of Jesus Christ? Who is worthy to even untie his sandals or wash his feet? Yet he washed his own disciples' feet and commanded them to have this same attitude of humility toward others. So the point there with the witness of regeneration is that Paul is taken from someone who is actively and willfully persecuting the church of God and in, in misplaced zeal is persecuting Christ himself. And that at heart is so changed and he is so humbled that he is considering himself unworthy to serve Christ, yet at the same time is rejoicing in his ministry as an apostle. That's regeneration. That's, that's a complete new life, a new heart. And it's a powerful witness for the resurrection. If people knew you before you were saved and know you now, that is a powerful witness for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, if indeed you are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. We really get to the regeneration in verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When he says, though it was not I, it reminds me of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. He's saying, I am new. I'm a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. I am not just a changed person. I am a new person. I'm not an improved, a new and improved Pharisee. I count all my past achievements rubbish because of the work Christ has done in me. He has made me a new person. He has given me a new heart. And in place of my heart of stone, he's given me a heart of flesh. This is the witness of regeneration. If you are in Christ, that is your personal testimony. Paul's testimony is my testimony. I may not have stoned a Christian, but before Christ saved me, I had in my heart hostility and enmity toward God. My heart was hostile toward the things of God. I could not seek God. The witness of Scripture is clear that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. But praise God, I have been crucified with Christ and because he lives, I live. Is that your testimony? It's the testimony of every blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ. So that's the witness of regeneration. Now in order, the order of these witnesses is important. Paul is about to bring in another witness. We would tend to put this next witness very high on the list. When someone tells us that Jesus that all this Jesus stuff is a bunch of baloney. What is our first impulse? We, don't, we would normally start with reason. And we would try to go point for point, countering their objections. That is important, but it's not where we start. We start from Scripture and go from there. Let's take a look at the witness of reason. Now this one is the big point, so we're going to really cruise through it. 1 Corinthians 15, 11 through 19. Let's read this whole section. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, 
and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not even raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have hoped in Christ, if in... if In this life only we have hoped in Christ. We are of all men most to be pitied. The argument from reason comes against a philosophy that existed among the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and other philosophical groups that would deny the possibility of a resurrection. Paul is saying, look, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, Christ didn't raise from the dead. In short, his argument is, and remember, he's writing to a Christian church, everything we're doing our assembling together, our faith, our suffering, it's all a sham. I'm a liar, God's a liar, it is all worthless if Christ did not rise from the dead. So the first reality, if Christ did not raise from the dead, would be vain preaching, pointless preaching. In 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul describes this kind of preaching as boxing, as one who beats the air, shadow boxing. A lot of energy expended with nothing really to show for it. Another consequence if Christ has not been raised is lying preachers. Men standing up in front of a crowd proclaiming a lie. When I taught high school years ago, I discovered a couple of things about my students. Number one, some of them were very good liars. Number two, they had a very good nose to detect others who are lying and who are insincere. Do you think that the apostles, who were completely shaken by the crucifixion, could have snuck into the tomb, stolen the body, and propagated a lie so convincing that 500 people believed, and then later 3,000 devout Jews on the day of Pentecost believed what they had to say? These men were fishermen, tax collectors, uneducated for the most part, and certainly not well-respected in society. It seems ludicrous that they could have done such a thing or even wanted to if Christ had not risen from the dead. Another aspect of the witness of reason is that without the resurrection, we would be hopeless saints. You know, the Bible calls us saints. We're literally set-apart ones. God has set us apart for himself. Saints without a Savior are miserable. People can unite in memory of a dead hero, but that dead hero cannot relate to them personally, cannot give them any actual strength. He is only a memory, and memories fade and falter and alter. Jesus is alive. If he is not, the saints are hopeless. Look at the cheap copies of the resurrection in pagan religions or even in observational science. They rest their hope on the fact that the sun's going to rise again. And you know what? Science does this as much as religion does. And they worship the sun directly or indirectly. They tie themselves to the cycle of nature. It's impersonal. It's only the creation of God. It's only what God put there to remind us of our creator. And there is no real hope in it. It's just an endless cycle. The circle of life a vain hope that life goes on like the circle of the sun. But that's all it is, a vain hope. There's no meat on those bones. Now we're going to skip a section because of time here. We'll go go down to verse 29, where Paul expands his argument from reason by introducing an argument from tradition. Okay, so he's got this witness of reason. Tradition is part of it. Now this verse is a really confusing verse. It's totally thrown the Mormons for a loop because they do this baptism for the dead thing and they believe they can actually rescue or somehow affect the afterlife of their dearly departed through baptism. 
1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 30. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is not a biblical tradition. You can't find baptism for the dead in the Old Testament. We don't read about it in the Bible. However, it was, there was, it was a certain pious act that some of the Jews probably did, or maybe even some of the pagans in Corinth did. The idea was that there was an innate certainty of life beyond the grave, and there were rituals performed that would hopefully help the person who died in the afterlife. There was something built into there is something built into our human consciousness that says that there is something that there is life beyond this life. Why else would the Egyptian pharaohs build tombs heap with and have them heap with treasures and their favorite possessions? Because the hope was that those objects would carry over into the resurrection. There is a profound understanding in all but the most stubborn and arrogant of cultures that death is not the end. And, by the way, Western intellectual culture is one of the few that would make that claim that death is the end. Continuing under the witness of reason, we find also an argument from martyrdom. Look at verse 30. Paul says, why am I in danger every hour? He's speaking as an apostle. Do you know that all of the apostles except for John, who was tortured but not martyred, died an early and violent death because they held to the reality of the resurrected Christ? According to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul says here, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. Now that's not just a spiritual death. Paul was continually faced with the very real possibility of death. Think about it. The threat of death was imminent for him. He survived stonings and beatings that brought him to the brink of death. And in one case of stoning, actually over the brink of death, and he was raised. He is not speaking just of himself here. Look at the next verse. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Now, Paul had not fought the beasts at Ephesus, but he knew people who had, and he knew people who would. People do not get torn apart by lions proclaiming a resurrection that never happened. Look at the persecuted church around the world, China, India, North Korea, Sudan. These brothers and sisters are often imprisoned and beaten for proclaiming their faith, gunned down and blown to bits while worshiping their Lord. This is not merely fanatical devotion to an obscure and abstract belief that some mythological savior rose from the dead. Christ's disciples going out in boldness, obedient unto death, points to a living savior who gives certain hope of eternal life. It is unreasonable to think otherwise. Now, verses 33 to 35 are very relevant verses. Now, pretend that there's actually high school students here. If you're a high school student or a university student or in the workplace or even a housewife, people are going to mock and ridicule the resurrection when you talk about it. Like at the end of verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. They'll just dismiss that. Hearing this over and over again can erode your witness and your confidence in the gospel. If you belong to Christ, he will sustain you through this. But look what it says in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The kind that, seem, that kind of seems to come out of nowhere. It says, Then it says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And then it goes on to say, to lay out some of the arguments that people are engaging in because Corinth was a port city and there were ideas coming from all over the world. Some of these things that mock and point fingers at the resurrection. They would pour out these ideas and they would call Christians fools. In Athens, a city a lot like Corinth, and actually Paul visited Athens right before 
his first visit to Corinth. Uh, in Athens, a city lot like Corinth, they called Paul a babbler, literally a gutter snipe. Now, our, our equivalent would be a magpie, a bird that would collect little treasures from the gutters and end up with a huge collection of junk. I think I know people like that. I might be one of them. They thought Paul was picking and choosing from all the different philosophies, cobbling together his own. They didn't understand that if anything, those philosophies, if there was anything true in them, had probably borrowed the truth from Scripture and were a perversion of the true gospel. Either that or a perversion of the witness of God which is written upon every heart as part of general revelation. So the world will ridicule us because of the gospel. Now, I'm sure you noticed the sharpness of the rebuke. I'm going off script here, but the sharpness of the rebuke that was in the middle there. Wake up from your drunken stupor. There are still people who don't know about Christ. There are still people who have no knowledge of God. Don't let the world, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, don't let the world squeeze you, conform you. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is your spiritual act of worship. A transformed mind is an alert mind, and it is a mind that is ready to engage the culture or the subculture or the bacterial culture that surrounds it. It is ready to engage that and overcome evil with good. Now look at, verse, uh, look at some of the arguments here. Verse 15, verse 35, uh, chapter uh, 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body, in what kind of, with what kind of body do they come? This is like, it's mocking. It's, they're indulging this fantasy. Well, what do they look like? Do they have little... You know, they look like aliens. You know, what do they look like? Explain that one, Paul. So Paul explains. He turns it around. Listen. Verse uh, 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body for not all flesh is the same but there is one kind for humans another for animals another for birds another for fish there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but if the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another there is one there there is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon another glory of the stars for stars differ from star in glory so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown perishable what is raised what is sown perishable is raised imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body thus it is written the first man adam became a life a living being the last adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, so the first Adam is the Adam we're familiar with from Genesis. The Adam who sinned. The last Adam is Jesus, the one who put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Paul is saying here that there is a difference between the body that we will have after the resurrection and the body that we have right now. After Jesus rose from the dead, he could walk through a wall and just appear suddenly in a room. And yet he could pick up bread and fish and eat it, and it didn't fall through his body to the ground. There's a different kind of substance. There is an incorruptibility and a change in the resurrected body. Now I gather that Paul's knowledge about the resurrection does not come, comes not only from his own encounter with the risen Christ and from his study of the scriptures, but I also have a hunch it came from a vision he had where he was taken up, as he said, to the third heaven. The details of that experience were so holy that Paul said that these things were not lawful for a man to speak about. 
God gave, even gave Paul a thorn in the side, a physical affliction, to keep him humble so that he would not become puffed up with that revelation. But I believe that what we have here is perhaps an insight gained through that revelation. Paul had an understanding of this, of the different resurrection bodies and so on, because he'd been there. He'd been in the presence of God. Not like these little uh, books that we have, Heaven is for Real, where some four-year-old writes out a whole theology of heaven and the whole world goes gaga over it. Uh, That is wrong on so many levels, and it's actually forbidden by Scripture. Um, And here's an apostle saying, um, it's not lawful for me to say what I saw. And you have these copious accounts. There are many of them saying everything they saw. Scripture is our revelation. And this is fully okay for Paul because he is an appointed revealer of truth. He is an appointed for inscripturation, for bringing the word of God to us. So... Anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But he says in verse 46, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. Just like the seed is first, that dead, hard, cold, little uh, compressed seed. That's first. The plant that comes, comes second. The first man, the first man, he says here, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second is a man from heaven. As was the man of dust... So are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are... I I don't have that written down here. So so are those who are raised with Christ. Now what I've, I've just breezed through a lot, very, very quickly. Especially this section on the witness of reason. But I hope that you can observe a template for presenting the gospel and the reality of the resurrection. No matter what the resistance might be, here's a pattern to follow. And I I think it would be wise not to deviate from this. First, start with Scripture as a foundation. Don't, Don't go where the conversation wants to go. Lay out your presuppositions. Lay out the truth that you have come to know and understand. People are going to need to know where you stand anyway. You might as well not keep them guessing. Number two, then go on to what maybe what you know from your own experience and the experiences of others, including the experiences recorded in Scripture. But go on, you know, this is, I, I want to tell you about my experience with the gospel that I've just shared with you. I would like to tell you that Jesus really has transformed my life as he promised in his, in, in the, as, a, as a gospel's promise. And that I have assurance of eternal life because of that gospel. You know, go from what you what is revealed to what you know through interacting with that revelation, and then finally proceed to reason in dealing with the specific objections. The objections are going to vary. They'll be so. But that general pattern is is going to be helpful. So, believe it or not, we're almost done. Let us observe now the resur- that the resurrection is a key to a prophetic mystery. So the very first point, and way back there, was that uh, revelation is uh, a, re- proof, a, a, pro- revealed, a proof of a revealed testimony. Now the resurrection is a, cap- uh, is a key to a prophetic mystery. Of course, the resurrection was a mystery in the first century because even amongst the Jews and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and Sadducees had different beliefs. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Sadducees didn't. There were other questions like the ones we've discussed, like what kind of body will we have, and so on. You know, whose wife will she be in the re- or will will she be in the resurrection? You remember Jesus' dialogue with the with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now let's look at Paul's explanation of the mystery in verse fifty. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot enter or inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, 
and we shall all be changed. So this resurrection body is different from the body we have right now. I believe Job was the first to prophesy about the nature of this body. This is fascinating. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And I know that I, in my flesh, even though my flesh is falling apart, literally rotting on my bones as I speak, (laughs) in my flesh I will see him, I and not another. Job knows that he is going to the grave, if not immediately, eventually, and that his body will decay, and that he has conf- and yet he has confidence that is given to him by revelation that he will one day see his Redeemer in his own flesh. So we've got a key here, that Jesus was raised, that he had a physical body, and yet it was not... When he rose from the dead, he had a body. There was a certain physicality to it, but that was not corrupted. It was not rotting. It was not tainted by the world in any way. It was a new kind of body. And Job had confidence thousands of years before that in spite of his dying, decaying body, he would one day see Christ face to face in a body fit for the throne room of God. Job knew that. I don't know how he knew that other than that God was gracious to give him that hope in the midst of his tribulation. Another point here is that the resurrection is the clothing of perfect immortality. 1 Corinthians 15.53 For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. It's the idea of putting on a garment. Garment referring to our body. It's putting off one kind of body and putting on another. We see this as a reality in our spiritual walk. How many of you wake up in the morning and head down the street and forget to get dressed? Anybody tried that lately? I haven't heard of, I haven't seen anything in the police column in the in the paper. Can you imagine if you woke up and went to work but you didn't get dressed? People would see stuff they didn't want to see. It's really important to put your clothes on. Clothes that are acceptable, appealing, and presentable. Putting on Christ is kind of like that. When Rhonda and I get off to a bad start in the morning and we start snapping and bickering, sometimes I have to stop and say to myself, Oh, I forgot to get dressed. I forgot to put on Christ. All you're seeing is me. All you're seeing is my old nature. All you're seeing is the body of death Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. You're not seeing me clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. You're seeing this other thing. We're commanded more than one place in Scripture to put on Christ. But here in 1 Corinthians 13, we have the ultimate putting on of Christ. When we are raised from the dead, we will be changed. Not only spirit, not only mind, not only our thinking, but our body will be raised again incorruptible. That is what Job saw from afar and what every believer anticipates. And finally, we have the resurrection is also a chorus of profound victory. For some reason, I can't think of these last few verses in any other way but as a chorus or a song. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And listen, you have to, you have to hear music with this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I like that part. It sounds a lot like, nah, 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 nah. Oh, death, where's your victory? Is that all you got? Oh, death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 57, 58 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We live because he lives. Every believer has the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in him or her right now. And we have the promise that he will raise us again to see him and to be with him forever. So there is a chorus of profound victory. Now, finally, we have some application. Paul says, therefore, therefore, in view of everything we have seen so far, 
my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your your labor is not in vain. The resurrection is comfort for our present reality. If you are weary in the work of living as an alien in this world, in the work of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, in the work of doing the things that he has laid out before you as a result of your new nature, listen to Paul's comfort. You know what? The resurrection is coming. What seems like toil right now because of the daily battle with the flesh and our weakness and the fact that we're afflicted in so many different ways, it's all going to end someday. You will have a body that is designed to bring glory to God, a body designed for immortality, a body that will never die. That is the ultimate hope. If the hope is only for this life, then we are indeed men most to be pitied. Our labor is not in vain. There's a new day coming when we will reign with Christ. I want to close with an exhortation from Ephesians 2, verses 3 to 10. And this is, uh, an exhortation is like a, a powerful encouragement. And I've, I've skipped out a few verses in the middle, so just bear with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Now, see, that is a present reality. Okay? That is a spiritual reality right now. In spirit, we are alive. We are alive together with Christ. We're not dead in our trespasses and sins. Still got these rotten bodies, but we're, we're alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's, that is the present reality that, that is true in God's mind and heart right now, that we are seated with Christ, with him, in heavenly places. Also gives us that assurance, gives us great hope for what's coming. And I'm going to skip down, now I'm in verse 7 here. So that in the coming age, he might know the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, excuse me, that we should walk in them. These works, these good works that are prepared before us, they are the work, that is the labor that Paul is talking about, the labor that is not in vain. When we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and by faith we understand we are seated with him right now in heavenly places, and that one day we will be literally seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. Our labor is not in vain. There is... There is tremendous blessing, reward, not in the sense of earned reward, but as far as um, undeserved reward. There is, there is tremendous payoff in just being obedient and living. Like the Apostle Paul says, I, for that the, the uh, sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is be, to be revealed in us or to us. That's the essence of this. Your labor is not in vain. The exhortation for today and for every day is for us to give ourselves fully to the work of God. There is much to be done before Jesus returns. There are many, many lost souls. There are many who are strangers to the grace of Christ. There are many mockers, many doubters. But as we look to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the gospel, we have a real message to bring. It's not a fairy tale. It's a message revealed in scripture, rooted in history, and written on our hearts. It is a message supported by reason. The message is our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. Let's pray.
I don't usually get goosebumps in church, Lord, but I got them now. It's, it's, it's so amazing what you have done for us, Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for the power of your indestructible life. I thank you for the hope of your incorruptible life. Lord, I thank you for the reality of your intercessory life as you intercede for us. Lord, as you plead your own blood shed once for sin against our unrighteousness, as you cover us in the blood once shed, but that it is you, because you are risen, who actively proclaim and act as our advocate. Lord, you are the one who is saving us now, that we are indeed saved through your life. I thank you, Lord, that the resurrection is not a myth. It's not a tale we tell to console ourselves. We have the witness of regeneration, of the Spirit of God within us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. God, you are so gracious and so merciful. And I thank you for what you have accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would embolden us through this message and through your word, that our labor is not in vain. And Lord, that if we've kind of fallen into a drunken stupor, if we're being conformed to the thinking that's around us and being corrupted by the bad morals around us, thank you for this good kick we needed from your word, not to be deceived that God is not mocked and that bad company corrupts good morals. Lord, we are, we are not to be in the world like zucchini, absorbing the flavors around us. We're to be like salt, um, just permeating the world around us. And thank you, Lord, for giving us this awesome responsibility and for your encouragement today. In Jesus' name, amen.